Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American arts, culture, life, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I'll be speaking with Curtis L. Chrysler about two of his books of poems, the first, Tough Boy Sonatas, published by Front Street Press in 2007, which is also beautifully illustrated by Floyd Cooper. This book of poems is about what Curtis calls urban Midwestern life. It pictures uh, Gary, Indiana, and the surrounding Midwestern region. His second book that we'll be talking about is Pulling Scabs, published by Aquarius Press in 2009. In our lively exchange, Curtis reveals a lot about his Midwestern background and the influences that brings his work to life. Please, listen in. Hello, Curtis. Hey, Dr. Zay, what's up? Not much. Today, we're speaking with Curtis L. Chrysler. He's an assistant professor of English at Indiana University, Purdue University, Fort Wayne. On his website, which I invite all of our listeners to visit, he says he is interested in his Midwestern roots and how the diversity of history makes up all that is America. And we see this impulse in his many books. He has three books of poetry, Pulling Scabs, which was published in 2009 by Willow Books, the one that we'll be discussing today. This book was also nominated for the esteemed Pushcart Award. He's published Tough Boy Sonatas, published by Wordsong, and he has a young adult novel to his credit called Dreamist. It's a mixed genre novel also from Willow Books. Curtis also has a chapbook entitled Spill, which was published in 2008. And it won the Keyhole Chapbook Award uh, at Keyhole Press. He has also edited a collection of nonfiction entitled Leaving Me Behind, Writing a New Me. And you can find that at lulu.com. We're happy to have Curtis on the show today. So, Curtis, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and perhaps a little bit about these works that I've just uh, enumerated? Okay. Um, well, originally I'm from Gary, Indiana. If you read Tough Boy Sonatas, you'll see the influence there and how uh, Gary has affected me. And um, so my background comes from that. Uh, fourth grade, uh, the, I, I tracked back my first aspect of writing to the fourth grade when my mother helped me with a Jackie Robinson poem for uh, Black History Month. And from that point, I had been writing uh, here and there, you know, kind of trying to impress girls here and there, which didn't work. Uh, <laughs> but um, after high school, I, I started keeping collections and stuff like that. And then uh, after I went to ITT in Fort Wayne, where I'm at, where I'm, I currently reside, I um, I uh, after I set out for like four or five years, I went back to school for writing. I started in journalism. Then I saw how they cut up everything. So. I ended up going into poetry, and that's where things started happening for me. And then, and so in the 90s, I wanted to publish, and I was starting to read more of, you know, black arts writers, 
uh, Harlem Renaissance, the beats, uh, surrealism from the uh, French perspective and uh, uh, from the uh, uh, the Latin perspective, things like that. And so uh, from that point on, I was just, hey, I need to be a writer and I need to get this stuff out. And uh, so I went to, uh, I got my BA at uh, ITFW. I left and went to SIUC, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And I had a great staff there. Uh, and that's where uh, Crab Orchard Review is as well. Uh, Allison Joseph, uh, Rodney, uh, uh, Rodney, uh, Rod- Rodney Jones. Uh, great, you know, uh, a great, great uh uh, a great place for writing. Adrian uh, Matichka, I met there. Uh, I met a lot of friends there. My friend Kevin McKelvey, uh, who are all writers as well. And uh, that's where I started into getting into uh, Coffee Canum. And um, after that, it just kind of blew up for me. Wow. And then, yeah, and then I came back to Fort Wayne and uh, limited term lecturer, visiting, limited term lecturer visiting then they put me on tenure track so here i am <laughs> well they recognize they recognize what a lot of your readers recognize that you're extremely um extremely talented uh, i wanted to tell you something i i went to um siu edwardsville <laughs> oh okay all right they, they, you went How, the, when, were, when were you there you, i can't tell the dates Oh, okay. All right. But but you were did you graduate from there or that's, that's your alma mater? It's okay. My, cool. It's my undergraduate alma mater. Mm-hmm. Um they they said that SIU Edwardsville uh was the um studious school and you went to the the party school Carbondale. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah. Uh as a matter of fact, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember my first year there, we had a whole week off for um um Halloween because something had happened to Halloween before and so they didn't want that the the actions to happen again. So they gave us a whole week off and shut down everything for the most part. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, now you have published a what seems like a book a year since 2007. Yeah, uh, I was looking at that, and I I um I was I was I missed 10, 2010, <laughs> but in 2009 I did have two books published. So I I kind of can push I feel I can push one to two thousand ten. But yeah, uh I, I've been really blessed in that. So the main part of our discussion today will be about um your latest collection of poetry, uh pulling scabs. Mm-hmm. But I would like for you to talk a little bit about um Tough Boy Sonatas. And okay. the reason being uh is because I use this book uh in in my classes quite a bit. I um uh talk uh teach sometimes Midwestern literature. Uh-huh. And the fact that oh, you okay. is about um, Gary, Indiana, and also um, peeking over into uh, Chicago um, mm-hmm. and its um, industrial landscape that you capture in this book, uh, I think it's 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 really well done. The other thing about it is that unlike the other books of yours that I have, this book is um, illustrated, and yeah. the illustrations are wonderful. The cover art. Uh, itself by Floyd Cooper um, is just it's exquisite so I mean this this mixed art form this uh, the art and and the poetry together works so well can you tell us talk to us about uh, Tough Boy Sonatas and possibly read a selection from it okay Uh, well first I'd like to say that um, it's 
uh, this is my thesis. And uh, I remember Rodney Jones being on my panel. He said, whoever <clears throat> publishes this is going to have to have balls. And I was like, wow, now it's never going to get published, Rodney. And uh, Willow Books is a young adult um, genre, which I was kind of worried about. But uh, having a workshop with Marilyn Nelson, she said, we need more uh, African-American uh, writers, especially males, in the aspect of this genre. And so I said, well, I have a manuscript that plays to the thematic aspect of boys and, and youth, but I'm not sure, you know, how it go over. Gave it to her. Uh, she read some poems later that night. She said she was going to show these poems to uh, Stephen Roxburgh, who at the time was working for um, Willow um, Books. And he texted me and contacted me and said he read the 10 poems and, and could I send the whole manuscript. I sent the whole manuscript. And the next day he got to me and said, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, what do you mean? He said, do you want to publish this? And I was like, you read the whole manuscript? You know, being a writer, that never happens. <laughs> and so uh, he had read the whole manuscript. He wanted to publish it uh, as a young adult book. And I was kind of worried about, like, the pictures you were talking about. But in seeing Marilyn's Carver, uh, A Life in Poems, I thought that was done really well. But it played to the youth as well as, other, you know, like you said, you teach it to your students and, and things of that nature. So I thought if they did something like that. And he said, well, we're looking for a photographer this type of person, that type of person. And he told me about Floyd Cooper. And I had, I'm not in the young adult genre, so I didn't know anything about Floyd. Um, and I told somebody, uh, a friend of mine, Helen Foss, was in the young adult uh, literature. I said, well, they said Floyd Cooper's going to do it. And she's like, you got Floyd Cooper? And I didn't know how big he was. And then when I saw the proofs, they just, it just hit me because Floyd and I are around the same age. And he had the same kind of experience growing up. So he said he had to change the way he put things on the, on the, um, uh, how he, how he laid things down. And he uses this erasing method. So it was amazing in that sense that the book became what it was. And, um, and it's basically, uh, I, I personify myself and, it, uh, Leroy, that the poem, uh, Leroy, that's, uh, a pivotal poem in the book. Mm -hmm. I had a problem with where to put that because the Gary poem has to set up everything, but Leroy is the voice. Mm. And, and so what happens, is, as you notice, Leroy is pushed down more. I had Gary, the Gary poem first, and then I had Leroy second. So people could understand that Leroy, the voice was coming from Leroy. But because of the, uh, the layout of the book and the, and the pictures, uh, we had to push Leroy down. And in making that decision, it becomes this book now about all these different aspects of boys in Gary, when it's really Leroy, Leroy's perspective of everything. Uh -huh. But since he's pushed down, now we see, we, we get these kind of disjointed voices, but it's just Leroy's uh, firsthand experience, uh, re, you know, uh, reminiscing back on something, reflective experiences and things like that. So it's basically uh, unprofessional personifying myself and the since my middle name is Leroy uh, back in the day you know how when your mother would call you in uh, <laughs> uh, street lights coming on she's she, you got three three tries Curtis 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 Leroy Chrysler and you know you had to be there in that visual sight when she you know uh, when she said the, your whole name and one day I actually asked her I said mama is my name Leroy or is Leroy and she said, it's Leroy, but it's Leroy when you piss me off. <laughs> and, and so so what happened was 
that clicked to me. And then Leroy was the persona I could use to, you know, push the poems to and not have to worry about me and not have to worry about so much weight being on Curtis and this being identified as the I. So the I, so Leroy gives it some uh, distance, some psychic distance away from that. Mm. Well, uh, this book isn't only about about boys, of course, no, um, no. Be, because um, now that you, you tell me it's from Leroy's perspective, he definitely reflects on uh, girls in the neighborhood, uh, mm-hmm. sisters and, and mamas. Can you tell us about uh, about the women in the in, or, or girls in Tough Boy Sonatas? Oh, yeah. The girls are uh, just as tough as the boys. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, at that age, there a lot of them a lot of them are tomboys even if they aren't tomboys they play like tomboys and uh so my sister uh, i i'm the only um male in my immediate family and so i was the oldest and i had two sisters under me but i had two aunts uh older than me that was older than me so i was in a house full of women until my uncles come over you know and uh my mother at 7 she had me at 17 so when she's 24 and I'm seven, we lose our great-great-grandmother and my mother's mother. And so she becomes the matriarch of the family. So all of a sudden, everyone's coming over our house and for Christmas, Thanksgiving, Fourth of July, and all that stuff. She's the one who's keeping the family together without knowing how to do it because she has no one to go to, right? And um, so uh, that becomes really relevant to me uh, because she... My mom, I, uh, I think as William Stafford says, the voice he hears when he's writing is his mother's, and I connect to that so well because it is my mother's voice. She's, it's, she's always been there. So I see through her eyes sometimes, and then uh, when I reminisce about certain aspects of that life that we got out of the project, um, my sisters, my aunts, they're all a part of that. And all the women that are in there, because there are there are women, and a lot of people think people aren't married, and some of them are, some of them aren't. It's a mis, it's a mishmash aspect, but the women hold together a lot of things. Because when I was coming up, everybody, we were a small family. All the people I just told you that were in my family, uh, my little sister wasn't there when we were in the projects, but um, so we were a small family where people, at that time people were having like seven, eight, nine, ten people in the family, and. So the woman held things down big time at, mm-hmm. at that point, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, so I see that uh, we had Miss Richardson would sell candy out of her house, uh, and there was a uh, Miss Molly who sold French. I can't believe I even know this. Miss Molly sold French fries and pop, canned pop, <laughs> and, uh, and she had the best. You would sit there and wait for her to fry the fries. Mm-hmm. She'd give you a batch of fries and. I was wondering all these years what she put in it, but she did something with some garlic seasoning or something that she put on them before, <laughs> you know, fries are like they are now. And, you know, you sit there and have a conversation with her in her kitchen, and she sell you fries and stuff. And um, back then you had the, uh, as, as one of the poems um, addresses, the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the man that comes around and sells vegetables and things of that nature, you know, you have people coming around doing that. And uh, so it was a totally different aspect growing up back then compared to, uh, you know, how things are now. Fruit man, the fruit man. And, you uh, know, th- that's one of the beautiful things about Tough Boy Sonatas, because sometimes mm-hmm. we think about 
African-American neighborhoods or, you know, uh, those neighborhoods in Gary or Chicago, where I'm from. I'm from uh, mm-hmm. Henry Horn Housing Projects in Chicago. Okay. We often think about them in uncomplicated ways. It's just sites of of violence or um, exactly. or, 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 or or you know un uh, unwanted spaces. But there's a, a, a rich history and a rich cultural um, existence uh, in those spaces a, as well uh, that you that you rightly paint. I think in your in this book. I was I'm hoping that you can read a selection from Tough Boy Sonatas for us. But I want to bring your attention to one that was really striking to me. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about uh, a female and uh, male relationship. It's it's one of the more I will call dark poems Uh in in the book. And it's entitled Mamas. And it's on page 46 in the hardcover edition that I have. I just want to read a little bit of it to Mm -hmm. you. Okay, Uh, it's called Mamas. And uh, it says, we can't stop the male hand that strikes you. When he's gone, we are happy to see your face without imprints of love. Your hurt pulls us close to you and hugs us before you tuck us into safety. And then I'm going to skip down. And it says, chirping crickets never count sheep. They stay up, keep us company. And through the crack of your bedroom door, we hear your tears crash as Aretha Franklin takes you to that place women never go with men. Over and over, the music continues to skip, skip at the same spot a needle and one penny can never handle. Now, I'm going to tell you why I love this poem. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't read the whole thing, so so, uh, listeners Mm -hmm. should be aware of that. Um, This takes me back to playing, you know, the hi-fi with oh, forty yeah. fives mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the needle skipping. I mean, it's so unlike you know our our current uh, exactly. uh, CD players, etc. There's a you know this is the experience with vinyl, and mm-hmm. the way in which the musical legacy and tradition um, in African American culture often spoke to the real lived experiences uh, that Black people had, whatever they were, celebratory or mournful. Or uh, in this in this sense, you know, a sort of um, hurtful love relationship, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and also the child's perspective on or the adolescent's perspective on on seeing that and being a part of it. What was the uh, what's behind this poem, or where do you want to convey with it? Uh, well, I, th- I I it wasn't a personal poem. That's what's really interesting. Uh, that's why I said mamas because. This is something that you could easily see in someone else's house. Say you're uh, playing and uh, you go to the bathroom and then you, you know, you kind of walk past the door and you you see the little crack and you see them crying. And you know how your cousin or your friend's parents are doing, you know, that type of thing. So it was kind of like a call out for all, you know, the women that go through this. And Aretha Franklin, and, and growing up there, there was no, uh, since we had Chicago radio stations, we were called Little Chicago, by the way, you know that. And um, we had uh, Chicago radio stations. So you would, there was no way that you didn't have music in your life. You'd go outside, music was playing on somebody's Electra 225 or Cadillac or whatever they had, or people just had it, you know, it was just playing Spanish, Bowie, uh, Commodores, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but Aretha Franklin was Aretha Franklin. And <clears throat> my mother cleaned up the house to Aretha Franklin, you know. <laughs> so it, it's, it's just like, uh, 
<clears throat> when spring cleaning came, you know, it's just looking out on the morning rain, you know, it's like, oh, here we go. We got to clean up the house, you know, or she'll, or she'll tell us, you know, go outside where she cleaned up the house. So it, I wanted to connect with that aspect, uh, especially that line. It, it, when you read it, it just did something to me. Uh, uh, Aretha Franklin takes you to that place. Women never go with men. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it is so, it seems so simple and, yet it is so profound in the sense of what they do to cope from the day-to-day of the cultural, social, economical time they're in and the things that they're going through to keep their family together, you know. So I thought that's what I was trying to, uh, at least that's what I was trying to connect to. Would you mind reading a selection from from the book? Yes, I will. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Boys Love Words on uh, page 70. And uh, the reason I chose this one... is it kind of gets me to that that point of me connecting to um where where you know where it all comes comes into play of me loving the smell of of books being in a library being that nerdy kind of guy in one sense um so this this kind of addresses that but it also gets to the annex of what we did you know in that sense uh boys love words We slogged to library to do reports on Satchmo and Rustic, brick red after school afternoons. Little brown-faced hood rats sneaking chocolate-covered donuts into library. Don't got milk or red cream soda to stop stick to roof of mouth. Half in study, laughing, hungry amongst tart, stale smell of old books, cedar chairs, dead authors in Miss Library Lady. She looks beyond her white cat-framed glasses like we stink of piss. We too breathe the once dank lines of Whitman, the open pores of her trocking lady who makes Shakespeare sweat, and we try not to sigh when we open the hardbacks. She knows we can smell the sex, bonded and glued, sandwiched between black and white lines. No short attention span. It's our curiosity and love with the words she oversees, checks in, hands out, in love with what trickles out our mouths. We flush her cheeks, flex our callow pecs, callous lotharios tugging at that new itch in genitalia. Very nice. You know, one of the things about your your poetry in this book and in um, Pulling Scabs is that uh, you don't shy away from really revealing <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, intimate parts of, of people's thoughts and, and natures, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. And um, I noticed a, a sort of a thematic, uh, uh, you know, about uh, relationships, um, skipping over to pulling scabs, although I, I don't mm-hmm. want to skip there too quickly. I mean, your uh, poem, Fornication with Ars Poetica, yeah. Uh, really, really uh, stood out to me. I, I, I like the whole sort of um, sexual tension with with words that uh, is going on in, in that mm-hmm. poem. But can you want to say a word about the poem you just read? Well, um, well, I want to say something more about what you just said in the sense of the relationship uh, aspect. And I always thought uh, I put that on my website that that aspect of the Midwestern connection. And I, I'm, I'm now terming something I call urban Midwesternism or something like that is what I'm calling it. Uh, that the way, I, well, what I'm writing from. Uh, um, um, but my, I think all of my, uh, my work 
addresses relationships, man relationship to man, man relationship relationship to women uh, or to woman, to nature, our relationship to ourselves. In some aspect, we are connected to the universe in a way that we can't escape. Um, and I was telling somebody, uh, you know, you think of one of the cruelest things that someone can do and they do in jail, in prison, is put someone in solitary confinement because in there they have no connection to anyone. Mm-hmm. So it's all they, unless other than themselves, which is hard. And you can't even, I mean, even if you're an introvert, you can't be, uh, usually introverts work within the confines of the collective. And now you you can't even be an introvert because you can't feed off of what you're introverting from, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, in solitary confinement, you're you're just there with your mind and what you have. And so that can be a lot. I'm, and I, and if you, even if you think in the aspect of, for example, uh, if you're a bully, well, if you're in solitary confinement, you can't bully no one. Mm-hmm. There's no one to bully, so the collective is gone. So you still need the collective to be around to be even the you know the most ardent of criminals or whatever it is that you do. But as far as love and you know all of that, I think is a mixture. So my my aspect of relationships uh, tend to be that I, I think that's the core of everything uh, where I write from. Very nice. Okay, so let's go to pulling scabs. I'm, I'm thrilled that we had an opportunity to talk about Tough Boy Sonatas. I've I've been mm-hmm. um, eager for years to, to you know finally meet you and and have an oh, in depth uh, conversation you. about this book. And I and I hope that we uh, you know still can in the future. Tell mm-hmm. us how you came to write Pulling Scabs. Now Pulling Scabs came for me after my first um, my first workshop uh, the first year I went to Kavi Kanem. And I came back and I had this idea of, and the book was actually called Triplet. And it was like, try, 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 plat, plat, plat. And I had this idea of three poems, uh, a thematic run of these, this aspect of these poems that were in threes. And they played off of each other. And uh, when I was, uh, some of the poems were getting picked up and some weren't. And uh, it, it was just, uh, it, it molded itself after in the years after that to be becoming what it is now. And so I had to, uh, one day I just had to kind of get away, you know, cause you're too close to the forest for the trees. But when I came back, I just started dismantling and reconstructing. And so, um, after that, it was, uh, I had it, I had another name for it. Uh, magenta, the, uh, I think it was the, the magenta or or something with magenta in it. And that didn't work. And it's hard for me to come up, come up with a title because titles say something, do something, and move you to look at look into the book in a sense. But then when uh, pulling scabs came, it just the the aspect of the magenta I had. You'll see in you'll see residues of it if you look in the uh, the title. And it was like a blue, blue and magenta, mm-hmm. and uh, spill was part of that. And so what it was, I had like uh, a, a glaze of magenta, I think it was. And so in thinking about magenta, it took me to blood. And then I just thought about the aspect of the healing 
and pulling scabs came out of that. And I thought about how when you are little, you're always wanting to see under the scabs. So you pull it. <laughs> and so you have this aspect of our the darkness of our history at the beginning. Then you have the middle part addressing music that kind of helps you to make it through that. And then the end is hopefully some aspect of mending, some aspect of coming together. And that's what the book, for me, does. That's, that's how I created it. And so it's... Um, Addressing that history, then dealing with that history through musical means like my funk education and uh there there are three poems. There's a um Michael Jackson Prince and uh Madonna poem in there that are all uh persona poems and it's mm. from their perspective. So personally, uh ordinarily and um uh there's another one I can't think of right actually. Are, are those, and the reason I wrote them because they were all born in 58, uh, which was something interesting to me. It's like, how did hmm. these three people become so big, you know? And then I realized they were all born in 58, so it was really interesting. Wow. So that's what the, that's what Pulling Scabs is about for me. And it's, Pulling Scabs is, uh, reflects African American culture and is in, and seems to be inspired by African American culture mm-hmm. through and through, beginning with the dedication to Ossie Davis, the actor, mm-hmm. Rosa Parks, uh, the civil rights activist, and Coretta Scott King. Mm-hmm. And you say that uh, because of them, we are all the more beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, why those three? Well, uh, they had passed that. Uh, it was like, you know, how they always say people things happen in threes and uh after i can't remember who died last i can't remember uh if it's rosa correct i think it was rosa wasn't it i don't know if i have them in the order that they died but they had all three had died and it was just where you're getting to this point where you start seeing the people that you've grown up uh you know uh loving seeing in movies things like that being a part of your life and their passing. And I, and I think about this even just like watching, I don't know, good times. And, you know, when uh, Florida died or, uh, uh, you know, when people start dying and just like, man, I grew up with that person or uh, Weezy died on, on the Jeffersons. And these are the people that you just had a connection to because these are the emulators of black life mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. up. And so, uh, when, so people just start dying. And it's just kind of like, wow. And when these three died, that was, they're all connected to civil rights as well as the arts and other things. And so, uh, I just, I didn't really pay attention to that when I was thinking about it. I just thought, wow, we just lost, lost three influential people in the black community. So if I tell you what my favorite poem is in this book, will you tell me what yours is? I can try to tell you. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of like on any given day, it may be a different one. But what's your favorite? Okay. Um, you know what? That might be true for me, too. Um, mm-hmm. Today, my favorite poem, and correct me if I mispronounce the title, um, mm-hmm. it's um, Simonin. Oh, Simonin, yeah. That's what I call it. I love Simonin. That opening line, listening to Nina Simone, makes me hungry, horny for love playful yeah. for the touch of a woman bending my insides like a slinky. That's pretty deep. Tell, tell us about the uh, Nina Simone influence. Well, I, I, I've listened to Nina Simone for a while, but uh, it's after Carolyn uh, Beard Whitlow, and uh, I, I, can't, I think it was the first year I was at Kavi, yeah, and this comes out of that. 
so this is one of the poems that was a like a uh I had these poems as you can see it's it's kinda from uh one side to the next, but there's this I call it my uh, newspaper poem because it has that newspaper feel to it mm-hmm. uh whereas all this white space in between uh lines and 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 letters and things of that nature but she she has a poem called um I think it's, I, I don't know the title of it, but in the poem she's saying, Nina, she moans, Nina, she moans. And she had that poem going, and we were all on the edge of our seat. And I look over to my right, and a gentleman who's usually, you know, collective, that has, you know, pretty much, you know, he's he's pretty, not, I won't say stoic, but he he, he keeps himself together. Yusef Komenyaka is on the edge of his seat, just looking at it. Just, it's, it's kind of like she's playing jazz, and he's just and he's just like, oh no, no, she didn't. Kind of, you know, that's the feel I'm getting. I'm like, where am I at? <laughs> and uh, so, um, what I call, I call what she did, Simone. Mm. And so that's where that comes from. And then uh, I just took that, and it's like, well, how do I do something to address? what she just did to us, you know. Wow. So what are you feeling today in terms of the poems and pulling scabs? Well, I had that as one of the poems. I had that and uh, before the reshoring of Megar Evers, his son says alone. So you... I will, I'll, I'll, I'll hit Simone if that's okay. fine. Very nice. Okay. Yeah. Simone. Listening to Nina Simone makes me hungry, horny for love, playful for the touch of woman, bending my insides like a slinky. It's idiotic how her voice tracks on scale, a roller coaster glossing permanent trajectory about how black her lover's hair stands. The river and her tones transmute into puddles of glory, grace God gives to Abraham, Moses, and David. When no one recalls Hagar or Sarah, Zipporah or Bathsheba, Nina moans. She conjures their essence with the little spittle she has left. Something like Jesus in her passion. Federico Garcia Lorca must confess she is Duende abound. She isn't pomp. Don't play Eucharist. Nina has apt appetite and greedily eats the fabric of consciousness. Like meditating yogi, it is Muga for her. Open up the heart and let mouth Ellington all arrangements. And when note flutters inside gut, make it chime every groin like a metronome. Very nice. Beautiful. Tell us about, could you tell us about the poet's voice and and not Mm -hmm. the voice in the, in the, in the, in the writing, but it's something about the way you poets read that that is really delightful. Tell us about that performance. Uh, I think uh, I, I always tell my students poetry works on three ways. You can write it, you can hear it and you can say it. And and so the aspect of, uh, like a lot of people get away from the aspect of performance because you can be, there's a, a, a hy- uh, hyperbolicness to that, as, you know, to uh, overdoing it, you know. Uh, and, and so when you see slams, you can see some people going overboard in a sense. But if you really want them to hear your words, you, you need to say the words as as they need to be said. And you have to think about this musically in a sense of tempo. If we're going to talk about meter and metrics and all that kind of stuff, you're writing that. But uh, I feel like a jazz player when I'm reading, just like I said, on any given day, it could be any given poem. 
I feel like the tone or the timbre of the poem can change on the aspect of my mood or emotion. So, um, so when I'm reading, I, I just connect, you know, I always think these are the words that you put together. Let them hear your words. And so when I'm reading, I, um, I, I look to that. Uh, some people are good readers. Some people aren't good readers. Some people are good performers. Some people aren't good performers. And some people are good readers and performers. So they know how to play between the tone, the register, all that stuff. And it's kind of like um, um, the only way I can think of it is the first time we saw Michael Jackson, uh, Motown 25th anniversary, and his brothers leave the stage and Billie Jean comes on mm-hmm. and he's up there and everybody's looking at him. Nobody else is up there. Everybody's looking at him. You you don't know what your mama's saying. You don't know what anybody's saying. For that, the length of that song, Michael is on, and we're there. And that's what a poem should do. I told my students the other day, a poem slows you down. A poem says, hold up, you have to listen to me. You cannot not listen to me, you know. And so in, in reading that, you have to... Uh, alliterate, articulate, and give to the aspect of that rhythm and, and the words that you chose to put together, I think. And so poetry, some people have a poetic tone that's kind of, they read the line and you can tell where the breaks are and stuff like that. And like I said, I don't, I, I feel more jazzy in a sense. It's the same song. It could be the same song every night, but as far as the timbre of it and things, that's going to change. So you get a different mood to it, maybe. Is there a uh, consistent influence among poets, do you think, um, from Archibald MacLeish's Ars Poetica? Mm-hmm. The reason I ask that is because in a, in a previous interview that I did with another poet, um, he has a, 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 a poem <laughs> called Ars Poetica, and, and so do you. So is, mm-hmm. is, what's that influence? Well, I think what I, I, I had never written an Ars Poetica poem. And, and so the aspect to write about the, you know, to write on poetry, the meta uh, discursiveness of that was really interesting to me. And then it's like, well, how can I write one that no one else has written, so to speak? And then I just kind of addressed it in the sense of following uh, a beautiful girl in, in, in one sense. And then it just started, it hit me. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, Ars Poetical poems. And I think people, you, you kind of want to uh, stretch your, your, you know, uh, stretch your range, so to speak. So you can show that, yeah, I can do an Ars Poetical poem. I can do a sonnet. I can do a sestina. You know, bring it on. I can do a bot, you know, whatever it is. And, and so I, for me, that's what it was. But there, yeah, I think you're going to see I don't know of a poet that doesn't do them, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just to try it, uh, to, to play with the, the language of the poetic, uh, the theory behind poetry and things of that nature. Very nice. So um, the other poem that you mentioned that you're going to read, um, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you to read that right at the end of our interview so that we can have okay. your voice as the, as the last thing. But okay. I want to ask you, uh, what are you working on now? Um, I'm working on two, well, actually three manuscripts, two of poetry, one of uh, fiction. Um, the first one is called Spilt Lip, and uh, 
it it gives to he's uh, built lip is a tag for a person who's you know kind of like tagging the city and things of that nature uh uh like uh, uh Basquiat used to do back in the day mm-hmm. and and so um so what i what I'm doing is you know it's kind of like I started out I had it as something else, and then uh Terrence Hayes messed me up because he came out with lighthead. And I had something like Matchhead or something like that. And I was like, oh, I can't do Matchhead now, you know, because he has Lighthead. And so um, so I, I had to switch it up to something else. And Spilt Lip kind of gave to the aspect of a tagger's name versus uh, the spilling of words coming out of the mouth, so to speak. And so he's the one who's writing through the poems. And you're seeing I'm, I'm splashing his name on, like, uh, random pages here and there, like a uh, uh, spilt lip was here, or, or you know, by the end is like spilt lip is not here anymore, mm. or spilt lip is no more. Playing off the Basquiat, you know, uh, uh, same old uh, is, is dead, so to speak. And so, uh, so you get that play through there, and most of his poems are addressing uh, urban life, urban uh, uh, connections to. Uh, what's going on? There's a poem um, I have. It was a DJ poem at first. It was DJ 2010, and then I, you know, I, I gave it to Spiltlip, and he became the voice of it. And it's him talking to the president. Uh, it says, "Our first black president uh, is called racist when uh, uh, the body he comes from, the womb, the life of his womb is white." And you know, it, it gets to this facial thing that we see. We see him as a black man, but we don't see his mother, his grandmother, that side of his family. And it was a white commentator who said uh, Obama's, you know, a racist against white. So Spilt Lip is going in and saying, you know, dude, don't ever, you know, we're from the Midwest, the Midwest I come from. We, you know, we, we close eyes, you, you know, with cysts and stuff like that. And so he, uh, so this is going through all this turmoil of, the, uh, of what has been happening in the last couple of years and things of that nature. And it's, it's very relevant to, to now because everybody's trying to find a footing, trying to understand who they are, trying to get a job, all that kind of stuff. And I remember in, like in the 80s, I was on the other side of that. Now I'm on the, I'm on the side that, you know, trying to maintain the job. Mm-hmm. Where in the 80s, I was, you know, with Reaganomics and things of that nature. I couldn't even get a job at McDonald's, you know. So it's really interesting and relevant. So I think Spilt the, uh addresses that. And then the other book is, uh, I'm actually calling it uh, 45s and 33s. And um <laughs> And it's, um, I like that, four- by the way. I like that title. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And well, the first, the first half is about uh, Stevie Wonder, and uh, I was thinking about how Stevie Wonder has been the soundtrack to my life. And one day, after, like I was telling you before about so many people passing and stuff, and I thought, man, what if uh, Stevie Wonder died? You know, and I thought about it. There has not been a day I have I've not known Stevie Wonder's singing in my house or whatever, you know, in my life. And then the next week, Michael Jackson died. And so I was like, really, uh, it really hit me because Michael Jackson had been, you know, being from Gary, you know, it's almost like you're from Gary, you have to dance like the Jacksons or something, you know. Um, 
But uh, so that first poem addresses the narrator saying, thinking about you passing, I killed Michael Jackson in a sense. And it goes through and it, it addresses Stevie's life. And then the second part, 33s, is about, um, the, uh, not Sylvester, uh, uh, you know the song? And mama used to say, mm-hmm. your time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's based on that. And, and so you had to, you had the song broken up, opening up little uh, fissures, and it's, it'll be like, and Mama used to say, and then it'll be what my, you know, what my mother really said, and there's these like prose-like lines that that give to um, uh, something like um, oh, I can't think of her name like that right now, but uh, oh, she did Sperm Kit, and uh, Harriet uh, Mullins kind of gives to some of the stuff I read when I was reading Harriet Mullen. So uh, so it, it's it's working on those two artists. Again, addressing the aspect of music in my life. I think I, I in looking at my work, you see music is a big part of everything, I guess. <laughs> and what about this uh, latest book that's out, the, the young adult novel, Dreamist? Okay, and it's funny that uh, you're from Chicago because it's about it. Uh, what happens is uh, the the I'll give you a little synopsis. Uh, Malik gets um, a scholarship to go to Cal State, but you have to go the summer of your junior year to uh, participate to get inundated and participate in the scholarship. So when he's there, he's unpacking his his stuff and he's in his room and he finds a photo album which he didn't pack. So he knows his mother and father put snuck it in there. And when he's going through the photo album, he's looking back and seeing all the people, uh, his family, his friends in Chicago and everything. And, you know, he's getting very uh, nostalgic in a sense. So he writes these poems to the pictures that he's seen in the photo album. So you get the poems from that perspective, but then you get the narrative of what's happening to him as this is going on. So it's it's uh you have the prose and the poetry put together to make a novel. Very nice. And so uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. You've um, enlightened us greatly on your poetry and on the projects that you're working on now. Can you uh, take us out with uh, one of your poems? Yes. Um, I I want to read this because uh, of the last word that that addresses uh, resurrection and. Um, well, I'll, I'll read this before. I'll, I'll just read the note so that can give people background who may not know. Uh, before the reshowing of Negar Evers, his son sits alone, was inspired by the resuming of the slain civil rights leader, Negar Evers, who was shot in front of his home in Jackson, Mississippi, on June 12, 1963. Byron D. LeBeckwith was finally convicted in 1994 after the resuming. Ever's body was so pristine, even 30 years later, his family had an open casket showing, reminiscent of Mamie Till for Emmett Till. Mm, very nice. Thank you so much, uh, Curtis Chrysler. Well, oh, thank you. And we hope to have you back on the show again. Okay. To learn more about Curtis L. Chrysler, please visit his website at www.poetboyworks.com. That's www.poetboyworks.com. We were delighted to have Chrysler on the show today and look forward to talking to him about his young adult novel, Dreamus, that was published in August 2011. Please visit his website and listen in again.